Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. And as we do every Thursday, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My host today is the host of Kung Fu Podcast with over 300 episodes of content. His journey in Chinese martial arts began in the late 80s and continues to teach in Raleigh, North Carolina. He's been teaching multiple styles since the mid-90s. He's also been working with chronic disease patients in hospitals and clinics since 1989. Please welcome to the show, T.W. Smith. How are you doing today, sir? Hello, Brian. Thanks for having me on the program. Oh, thanks for coming. So how we kick off the show every week, I want to go back to the beginning. I want to know what was that first spark? What led to that first interest in martial arts for you? A little background about myself um, and what stimulated it because it'll all tie in is that, yeah. you know, I don't, I'm not really the, what I would describe as a, a really smart guy. You know, I was smart enough to know that I wasn't that smart. Uh, but I did have a lot of things about myself that uh, I began to recognize first is I'm pretty relentless in the sense that if I dedicate myself to trying to do something, I won't quit. I might fail in different ways, but I won't quit. That won't, that will not be the failure. The other thing that happened along the way is that uh, I realized that I didn't come from a, you know, a family organization that, you know, had all these proper plans. Like you're going to go to private school, or you're going to go to this school and get this degree, and then you're going to take over this job. I didn't have any of that. I came from a farming family, and I didn't want to farm. If you've ever done it for, you know, from the ages of six to 16, you realize that anything's better than working in those fields, pretty much. Yep. So uh, most of my successes, if you would call them that in my life, have been formed around the fact that I didn't always know what to do but I did know I wasn't going to do that or not going to do that anymore. So that being said, I was in my early 20s and I had achieved many of those early successes. I, I had gotten a college degree, uh, which, which was you know great coming from my family. I had uh, pursued and, and worked on my uh, master's and I had a house, I had cars, I had things that most young men would like to have. And what happened was, is that I found myself in my early 20s being reckless. And I couldn't explain to you at any point in time what it was, but the way I describe it now is that I had all the things on the outside I ever dreamed I would have, but I felt hollow on the inside. Okay. And I didn't know what that hollowness was. I had never really experienced it before. And so I started searching, well, what could it be? You know, so I, I tried talking with friends that people that, uh, you know, I could speak openly and privately with. I uh, found uh, mentors. Later, I found at this time, we're looking at the late 1980s, early 90s, you know, in that area there, the mm -hmm. internet had not gotten out yet. 
Right. right. There was no Internet. And I'm in a rural part of North Carolina. So there was a lot of things I didn't get that people in Raleigh, Durham or Charlotte may have had access to. But I realized that uh, one of the things I found was a little big bookstore. And this was during that time that all these self-help books were starting to come out. Anthony Robbins, Find the Power Within, yep. uh, Scott Peck's uh, The Road Less Traveled. Uh, you know, there was a lot of great authors in this whole genre of books that was taking over. And I was studying. I figured I could find it there. And I did find some real good hints and some good uh, recommendations for myself, but I was still hollow. So then I turned and went back to the church and spent a lot of time in the church and and felt like I was back on a spiritual path. It was just certainly reviving a part of myself that gave me a sense of I don't know, self-awareness and, and spirituality that I felt like made me feel whole again. But at the same time, I had been searching and decided, well, you know, I, I was a football player during high school, got, you know, had football and wrestling scholarships to college. Uh, when I could no longer play college football because I tore a hamstring, I, I uh, later on um, got into various things like bodybuilding because, you know, bodybuilding is a way of life as well. And uh, then I had to give that up because of injuries. So I think that's when the hollowness kind of began. And I found, I thought, well, let me check into martial arts. You know, I've always heard, you know, you watch the good Kung Fu movies and, you know, young grasshopper shall always get smarter. (laughs) Right. So, you know, I think, oh, maybe that's it. Right. But I didn't know. I had never been in a martial arts class in my life. Being in rural North Carolina, there wasn't that many around. So I decided, well, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I'll know when I know it. Okay. And so I just, I went into that path. Um, It took me over a year to find a teacher. And by that, I tried out, I tried out schools. I looked into schools and there was this little hint that came along the way because I was asking, I was in Fayetteville. I don't know if you're aware of North Carolina, but you know, we have one of the largest army bases in the United States at Fort Bragg. Yep. And I, that's kind of the area I grew up in down in Rayford, Fort Bragg. I used to go to sleep with the mortar fire, uh, putting me to bed, rocking my brother and I wow. to bed asleep. So there's plenty of martial arts places around most army bases. Mm-hmm. All right. During the path of trying to find a school or a teacher, or at least be able to talk with one that I felt like might be the right one. Uh, somebody said, well, there's this old Chinese guy down there on Rayford Road, but he don't teach anybody. So uh, you might want to try over here or over there. Well, I said, okay, thank you. They didn't even know his name. And so I I went back to my home. And again, remembering that there is no internet, if you wanted to find somebody in those days, you had to go to that town, drive there, and literally either borrow, buy, if not permanently borrow, a set of yellow pages (laughs) out of a phone booth or something somewhere. Oh, yeah. Right. Do you remember those days? Oh, yeah. I remember the phone book. (laughs) Yeah. The phone book. My son sometimes laughs. I'm like, no, son, you need to let your fingers do the walking. Right. And he's, <laughs> what? <laughs> but uh, I went over there and I got, got some yellow pages and I checked out a few more schools. And then one other person said, hey, well, there's a man named David Chen. He owns a restaurant down there off of uh, Rayford Road. And if you could get him to teach you, he'd be the finest one you'd ever meet. And so that was the second time. And then after that, I made a few phone calls. You know what it's like to try to get an interview just with somebody sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, well, the thing was, was with Sifu Chin in the early 90s, he owned a restaurant off of Rayford Road that was called the Golden Dragon Restaurant. And 
you know, I checked into it and it was a very popular Chinese restaurant. He did a lot of, a lot of fine cooking there. And uh, so I said, well, I'm probably going to get shot down, you know, but I'm going to try. So I, I call him up and the receptionist answers the phone and, and I let him know. And I said, I'd like to speak to David Chen. And anyway, he picks up the phone and he says, hello, this is David. And I said, David Chen, this is Tim Smith. And I'd like to uh, introduce myself because I'd be interested in learning martial arts. And he said, why do you want to learn Kung Fu? And he was real sharp and abrupt about it. And I said, well, to be honest with you, sir, I just want to get to know myself. And I guess that was appealed to him somehow. And he said, come by uh, in a couple of days and we'll have tea. And that was my first lesson in learning that in in Southern Chinese culture, when they ask you to come have tea, Mm -hmm. that is code for I'm going to torture you slowly (laughs) with a long conversation. Right. And that's exactly what he did. It was like two and a half hours of gentle conversation about myself, what my interests were, you know, how would I think about this or that? And apparently, again, I passed whatever he was looking for at the time. And he said, come back tomorrow and start. And that was, you know, like I said, in the about 1990, 91, by that time. And uh, I never stopped. He, wow. he put me on the path that helped me find myself in a way that, you know, was totally receptive. All of, all of the students were welcome who could get through those initial triages. Mm-hmm. Of, and that's, that's how I got into the Chinese martial arts, uh, just by having an empty spot in my soul and a place that I needed. To, and I did know myself well enough to know that if I don't have purpose, I have trouble. Because I get into trouble when I don't have purpose. So do you remember some of the other schools you went and visited? What what were some of the styles that maybe didn't appeal to you or, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't like well, that spark? I, I, well, I can tell you the first one was a Taekwondo school okay. and it was a great school. I love the instructor. I actually had known him for a while and he had invited me to go down. So I gave him the first uh, opportunity to kind of introduce me to the martial arts. And it was very it was, uh, you know, everybody was bowing, everybody was in their geese, everybody was doing the right thing. And it was very respectful. And I, and I told him, I said, you know what, I, I love what you do. I just, I just want to keep looking. It just didn't like the spark. And okay. then um, I uh, found a karate school that was at the time and close to Fayetteville. And then I found a Kung Fu school that was a praying mantis Kung Fu school that was really close to Brack. Okay. But uh other than that, you know, those were the three I kept hunting around. And some of them I would just do a phone interview with, you know, right. just who are you and those types of things. But the three I remember visiting were those. And all of them were, nothing was wrong with them. They right. were apparently very respectful. But the, the difference with Sifu Chin was, is first, it was formally informal. There was no uniform. Your uniform was the sweat on your brow. You showed him that you were, you, you came there to work. Uh, you could wear, you know, your pair of shorts. We would, there was no dojo per se or quoom per se. Uh, he had a banquet room on the back end of his restaurant that was designed for what banquet room do is so that if a corporation wanted to sit 15 to 50 people in there, he had a, uh, say like a 20 by 30 room that he would put you in. Okay. Right. When that room wasn't being activated, that's where we would practice unless he would throw us out and we would go out into the parking lot behind the building. Okay. So we were always outside in the hot, fable North Carolina asphalt that was easily 145 degrees (laughs) if it was one. 
And there was no air conditioning in the banquet room. He would never turn it on because he said that's an expense that students don't get. <laughs> and, uh, and there was no ceiling fans. And so the ruggedness of it appealed to me. Okay. And a lot of people would come and leave because they didn't like that. You know, you didn't uh, you didn't have all this formality, mm-hmm. but you had one formal thing that every, well, there was a couple of formal things. But one of them, though, was is that everybody who came in there, regardless if you were a major a cardiothoracic surgeon, if you were just a, a layman, just, you know, retired from the army or, or, or a cook, it didn't matter. Everybody came in there to work on their martial arts the same. You treated everybody respectfully the same. And uh, that was pretty much it. You did the work he asked you to do or you got kicked out. Okay. Uh, so that appealed to me a lot. And to this day, that's still how I teach. Oh, nice. Nice. So speaking of that, so what, what drew you to teaching? What made you, and how long before you started teaching? Oh, that's an interesting story in itself. I was seven, about seven or eight years in, which was also a cultural thing, but I was, it was 1997 and I was getting ready to, uh, and I, so I've been training with him for a little over seven years at the time. And in Chinese culture, that's a big deal, right? So I've been training with him for over seven years, pretty much you know, every practice, everything I did every day would, would be associated with it. We had three to four practices a week formally, and then we could go by the restaurant to practice any other time we wanted. And so by late 1997, I get this offer to move to Houston, Texas, to uh, partner up with some physicians and therapists to open up an outpatient rehab facility in um, downtown Houston, Texas. So this was back when the Astrodome, my office was right across the street from the Astrodome at the time. And so Sifu came in to me one day and he was like, you know, we were talking and he said, you know, you know, you've been training a long time and it's time for you to embrace the teaching a little bit more. And I said, well, Sifu, I, you know, I appreciate it. And so, you know, I was what they were, he referred to me as what was called the Dasi Heen. And as the Dasi Hing, I was responsible in Fayetteville while I was with him. Those last three or four years, I was responsible for most of the new students that would come in. So like if you wanted Sifu Chen to teach you or you want to be of students, one of his students, he would talk with you. He would interview you and do those sorts of things. And if that set right with him, he would say something like, well, won't you come into practice? Make sure you find Tim and he'll get you started. Right. And so, uh, that was part of my responsibility for at least three years to four years on top of my training. Mm-hmm. So later when he asked me to, you know, I was, when I was going to go to Houston and he asked me to t- take on the teaching a little bit more. I told him, I said, well, see for, you know, I, I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. I realized that, I, you know, I have a lot more that I still need to practice. He said, and that will always be the case if you continue training. Right. You always realize that there's still more to be practiced. So he said, so, but I want you to, I want you to embrace the teaching because it will help you get to the next level. Well, I said, well, Sifu, if you don't mind, let me just kind of slowly wrap my head around a little bit. And he provided me with um, authority and reached out to a few folks, certified me to, to teach and things along those lines. And when I first moved to Houston, all I did was practice and work. Starting a new business in Houston, Texas, took a lot of my time. I barely had enough time for myself mm-hmm. to train. And I didn't realize how darn hot it gets in Houston. <laughs> uh, you know, it's 
before sunrise at 5.30 in the morning, it's already 85 degrees and 80% humidity. When the sun gets up and it's 110 and 85, 90% humidity, it will smoke you right down. So all of my training had to be in the morning for me to get anything else done. So while I'm there in Houston, a few folks come to me and ask me to train them. And I just kind of shoo them away a little bit and say, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not interested. And then apparently one of them called back to Sifu Chen and said, you know, I tried to get him, get him to teach me, but he wouldn't. And Sifu called me and he said, Hey, you know, look, it's time for you to start taking on a student. So that's basically when I started teaching a little bit around 1997, right at the end of 97. And I still taught in the same sort of same sort of format that he taught me in. And once I got involved in it and the responsibilities, what happened, one of the things I learned is that when you learn with students and you start training students, it's motivating for the instructor to keep up his practice and to keep up the things and, you know, not just walk the walk and talk the talk to be a leader right? To, to encourage people by letting them see you do it, not just say it. And so uh, that was the next level of teaching that I didn't realize that was waiting for me. Nice. And how, how long were you in Houston? And while you were there, did you do any additional training on your own? I mean, not on your own, but with any other instructors while you were there? Uh, I was there for about four years. And during that time, a little cultural experience happened that right below my clinic on uh, Fannin Street in Houston, there was a park that people would go there to walk. And like I said, it was, if you didn't get out there early, you were sweating your rear end off out there in Houston. Uh, So I got out there at about 5.30 to start my standing meditation called Jam Junk. And I would do my posting. And after a couple of months, this sound started to happen on one side of the park. And then one day I got to see what was creating the sound. This older guy, because, you know, I was in my 30s. Yeah, I was in my 30s. So anybody over 50 at the time, of course, was old, right? So (laughs) uh, (laughs) anyway, I heard this sound and it was, and, you know, I had never, I had heard it and didn't know what it was. And then I saw it and it was a rather thin looking Chinese man walking on the dirt path around the park. And he had this long staff in his hand. And on the end of each staff, what it later I found out was those little tassels that you used to put on the end of your handlebars when you're a boy and you had a bike yep. or a girl, you know, when you're a kid and you had to bike and the little tassels that would hang off the end of the handlebars. He had them driven into, screwed into each end of his staff. So when he would spin his staff at this helicopter speed, the sound it would make was and I, you know, I smiled to him one day and, and he came over his Nihama da, 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 and he was talking with me. And, but I, I didn't speak. I barely spoke any Cantonese, which was just enough because my seafood spoke Cantonese mm-hmm. uh, usually. And uh, so I could understand some of it, which took years, by the way, uh, to understand some of it. But I had no clue about Mandarin at all. So uh, what happened was is he and I used to stick and we'd write the Chinese characters in the sand. Oh, okay. And so he would say something like, I'd write something in saying he'd say, sweet. And I'd say, water, sweet, water, right? So we would communicate like that, like two cavemen. Nice. Um, 
That's Buffalo. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so anyway, his name was Lao Pei Jong. And he and I became good friends over the course of months because what happened was, I said it was a cultural experience, is that I was, as I was out there practicing, he would come out with a group of about three women and two other men who were anywhere from 45 to 75, 80 years old. And they would come out of their apartments and they would walk across the park. And then they would go over there and do Bakwa and Tai Chi. And he came over one day and he sat down on the picnic table because I'm standing there doing my jam jung. And for any of the audience that doesn't know what jam jung is in Chinese martial arts is standing meditation. Meditation is the simplest part of the exercise. Mm -hmm. It it gives you both cognitive and these neurological exercises that you do while you're standing still so that you can stimulate the nervous system. You're doing your mind training, your body training It's extremely challenging. And so much so that even most Chinese people who know about it won't do it uh, because it's just that tough. So Lao Peng Jung would come over there while I was doing my jam jung training. He would sit on the picnic table and talk to me from time to time or just watch me. Mm-hmm. And one day I get through and he, he looks at me and he waves over and he's like, come over here, practice with us. And I said, OK, fine. And so I walk over there and they're doing versions of Tai Chi and Bakwa that I had not done before. And, and that was a lot of fun. But the coolest thing was, is that as we we're going through this set of Tai Chi, one of the older ladies just kind of, you know, nodded her head and she drifted herself back about 10 yards or so. And she sat down in the grass and pulled out a little bamboo flute and just started playing while everybody else was doing the Tai Chi. Wow. And it was like watching something out of the old Kung Fu movie, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, TV show. And that just, I mean, that little experience just kind of really settled in my heart. Years, uh, well, not years later, uh, a few days later, Lao Peng Jung invites me over again. And I looked at him. I said, well, why don't you come practice with me sometime? He's like, no, no. What you do is too hard. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he said, you just come with us, you know, have fun. Because I, I learned later that Lao Peng Jung was a physical education teacher in Shanghai at Shanghai University. And at that time, one of the things I learned through Kung Fu podcasts as I was doing my programming is that, you know, physical education is a post-revolution 1911, uh, yeah, 1911 phenomenon, or even probably 1925, 1930. That concept didn't exist in Chinese culture until about 1925, 1930. Okay. Uh, it was something that was pretty much forced upon them. That's when, uh, during the same time, Sifus went away. There were only coaches, right? Because it became illegal to practice martial arts. So uh, Lao Peng Zhang, apparently sometime during those times, had gotten his degree and became a physical education teacher at Shanghai University. And a lot of what he would teach would be the legalized versions of Chinese martial arts that would include Bakwa, Tai Chi Chuan, or, I'm sorry, just Tai Chi, and uh, Xingyi, uh, and he had a few other things, which included Shaolin Longstaff, which is why he always had his staff, right? Mm -hmm. So as I became his friend and never really his student per se, we we just had exchanges and funny laughs and good times. But one of the things that happened in that process is I found the value of the Longstaff 
uh, it became a what I would call my portable seafood, right? Because it uh, the staff never tells a lie. If mm-hmm. something happens with the staff, it was because of you, not because of the staff, right? Right. And it changes your physical dynamics so much so that uh, you know you have to be able to move and and get areas of your body stretched out that I had never thought that needed it. Uh, so that was to the answer to your question. That was part of what happened to me in Houston is that exchange, that cultural exchange. And that resonated with me and uh, really helped me appreciate the culture of the Chinese martial arts in a much different way. Okay. Wow. And you said you were there about, about four years and then what, uh, what mm-hmm. led to, what led you back to Raleigh and, and what made you decide to open a school there? Well, I got recruited to come back because of uh, some of my skill sets in my professional life for mm-hmm. working in clinics. And of course, then I had, you know, uh, participated in the, um, the management and creation of a full clinic in Houston that, you know, became pretty darn successful down there. And uh, so I got recruited to come back to do something similar and work with patient populations here in North Carolina. Then probably in about 2010, uh, I was working with the clinic and my Sifu Chen had sent me a student to start training under uh, what was called white crane Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. And as he and I were training, I started to realize, you know, the winners of North Carolina are not real bad, but they can get kind of real bitey. And sometimes they can extend themselves a little bit longer. So I said, you know what, I'm going to bite the bullet and find us a little 500 square foot facility to open up our own school in. And that's what I did. You know, it was just mostly so we had a place to practice. It wasn't really a school per se, Mm -hmm. as much as it was a place that we could go train when we didn't want to be out in the 26 degree, you know, (laughs) weather with the rain coming down. So uh, that became the spot. And then I bought, you know, uh, the year after that, the people who owned the, the space right next to me moved out. So I just, I kept picking up the space that was around me until I eventually had the whole floor, a little over 3,000 square feet. Nice. It started off though with 500 square feet Mm -hmm. uh, with one purpose, and then it grew into that organically over the course of 15 years. Wow. Okay. That's kind of cool. So what do you think has changed about your teaching style over the years? Thinking back to that first time you started teaching in like 97 to now. Teaching style, probably the one thing that's different now is that I feel like I'm a, a little bit more, I don't know what the right way to say it. I try to help, I try to meet the students about a third of the way of where they are. Okay. Now, and I say that because like, as I said, Sifu Chen, he didn't really meet you. He, you know, he would give you an extension if you said the right things and didn't, I guess, didn't offend what his thoughts were, then you were allowed in. But there were plenty of times that he, I, more than I would dare say 50 times if one, he would say, you know, uh, someone would call and say, and you could know, you knew what the questions were based on his responses. He would, uh, you would hear something like, uh, I would be interested in coming to see you, uh, you know, I, I've done this and I've done that, given their basically their martial arts vita. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would say, we, we would not be the right place for you. Uh, that would be one. And it would just you would never get past the door. Uh, I would dare say he probably turned away three out of four people that ever approached him about wow. learning, especially in the beginning. 
right? Mm-hmm. Because it, he would often say that it wasn't about having a school, right? It was never a commercial school. Like I said, there were no uniforms. There was no air conditioning. There was no nothing to make your experience pleasant, mm-hmm. right? It was a matter of work and doing the work ethic. So one of the things that I did is I, I improved upon that a little bit <laughs> and made it a little softer. We actually had AC and heat. Right? So, <laughs> nice. Uh, but to be honest with you, you know, even to this day, you know, every Saturday we practice outside from 9 a.m. Actually, I get there at about 7. A couple of my students will get there between 7 and 7.30, my, some of my advanced students. And we will train up until 11 o'clock to where I cook lunch, just like my seafood used to cook us dinner. And I cook lunch for, for all the students outside. And we sit down and we have lunch together after we have sweat together. That's cool. And, uh, and that's how I was taught. So I continue that tradition. But the condition is, is that first of all, if you don't do your meditation and do your training, you don't get to eat. <laughs> Second of all, is that we're going to be outside on Saturday. Rain, snow, sleet, shine, 16 degrees, 110 degrees. There's no bad weather. There's only bad preparation. Okay. And so those sort of lines still exist for the students. And we will go in, like, fortunately enough, now we, you know, we also have access and I've uh, got us access so that now we have a, a place to where we can go in and roll around on mats. Uh, you know, we have sparring gear. We have a mook jong things like that. So we can beat on wood poles and stuff like that, as well as have focus mitts and uh, shields and things like along those lines. We have some modernized stuff too, which was also something we didn't have with Seafood Jam. I don't recall him ever investing on, well, he did, but it was in a different type of way, but Mm -hmm. we didn't have a lot of gear in the beginning that uh, we did eventually invest as students into cameras and into shields. But, you know, uh, Funny enough that my first air shields that I could hold in front of me so that my classmate could, you know, punch me in the abdomen was a stack of those yellow pages duct taped together. (laughs) Right. So we would take those yellow pages, the Cumberland County yellow pages, two or three of them and duct tape them together. And you would, you would turn them sideways or, or hold them the other way around. And they didn't provide a lot of cushion but it sure was still a lot better than getting hit straight. Right. So my teaching, uh, I think uh, I do have air shields <laughs> and we do have focus mitts and we will occasionally, usually, even though we still do a lot of uh, flesh on bone kind of work very lightly so that a student understands this is what the skin feels like. This is what the bones feel like. So that if you're making contact, your body, your, your skin knows what it's touching you know, based on how it gives on, you know, because hitting someone in the chest is a lot different than hitting them in the abdomen. Yes. You may strike the same way, but what you feel on the receiving end is like, okay, that was the soft area. And then you know whether to go up or to go down. Right. And so, but, but you have to feel it. You can't just think it because thinking is too slow when things become continuous. Uh, You need to go, okay, that, you know, this, that's where I was. And then, then you can feel where to go from there. I should uh, invite you to come to Minnesota sometime and teach an outdoor class when it's uh, 40 below zero in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> this is how we fight in the sub-zero. In fact, we could actually get our little self the icon from Mortal Kombat. Yeah, there we all go. Right? Sub-zero. <laughs> yeah, that's usually when it's below, yeah, anything below zero, we, we try to not go outside much. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, I did my graduate work up at Appalachian State. I spent a week when it was below minus 10. Mm-hmm. 
It hit minus 50. Yep. And the wind was blowing across the mountain close to 50 miles an hour. <laughs> and it was the first time in my life that I thought that some of these legendary stories that I have been told, usually I just scuffed them off as being myth, right? <laughs> and then one day you're in it and you go, oh my God, it's true. Such as <laughs> yep. that you can spit and that it would ding when it hit the sidewalk, mm-hmm. right? That it would freeze before it hit the ground and turn to ice. And the day that that happened, I was like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they might call the mountains God's country, but there's times of year that no, nah, I think he went on vacation. I, I would agree. We had a, a month <laughs> a month straight where it did not get above zero. That wow. Was, that was not fun. I don't like it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm curious and what what led to the podcast? Where did that uh, where did that idea come from and kind of how that got started? Well, there's a little story behind that. You know, I've been training and feeling like I had done a, a pretty good job in trying to represent what my Sifu had taught me. And then also trying to represent the Chinese martial arts and the Chinese martial arts being, you know, what I would feel like would well, first, you know, a lot of the stuff that you would see in some of the martial arts exhibitions that were, you know, I would use phrases as hokey, somewhat, you know, you know fakey, TV-ish, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And um, some of that was really starting to bother me. And uh, I wasn't quite sure. Like I said, I wasn't. I didn't always have a path, but I didn't know what I didn't want to do. And one of the things is I was, uh, as I was trying to figure out, okay, how how can I better represent the Chinese martial arts? And what happened was is that I I had my first iPhone and I happened to check out, pushed a little button that said podcast, not knowing what they were. And so I little see the little search button and I just type in martial arts. And this gentleman's name pops up and his name is Ian Abernathy. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, and Ian, you know, uh, had a few podcasts out and I listened to a couple of him once I could figure out how to understand him. Right. <laughs> because, because <laughs> I listened to his podcast and I, you know, I had to employ the same techniques when I first started learning from Sifu Chen, because he spoke very thick Southern Chinese accent. Mm-hmm. And so usually as uh, I would really have to listen slow, repeat it to myself and try to make sure that I understood it. If I have to go back and listen again. And I employed the same techniques with Ian. And then I realized that a lot of times his message, his organic message in teaching in his philosophy was very similar to what I had been taught. And so I respected that. And I began listening to a couple more of his podcasts. And then he had this one podcast, probably about 2013, 2012, somewhere in there, when podcast was just first coming out. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but he made one statement and he said, you know, when we see a problem out there in the world, there's many of us that will recognize that there's a problem. There's many of us, for example, that will complain about the problem. And then there's a few of us that may try to do something about the problem. And, uh, you know, if you see a problem and you don't do something about the solution, then you're contributing to the problem. Now, as a martial artist, you can translate that into a metaphor saying, you know, if you're walking down the street and you see someone bullying and pushing someone into a corner, perhaps even assaulting them, and you just turn your head and walk by, who did you just help? Right. 
And of course, in that scenario, you just help the person who's being the, well, I'm going to watch my language. You're going to, uh, the, uh, uh, the person committing assault. You know, when Ian said that in his podcast, you know, I said, okay, I got to do something that's going to be actively trying to put particularly the Chinese martial arts, but martial arts in general in a, a good light, in a better light, you know, call out things when I, I, I know for a fact I'm seeing it and try to point to some of the things that we've done well, point to things that we haven't done well. Look at the history. What did the old folks teach us, you know, that came before us? Uh, where are we heading in certain, some of these areas? So Ian's comment, that one comment is the one that ignited the fire. And of course, uh, for me was the fact that I also, I don't mind learning. And apparently you've been doing uh, radio and voiceover much longer than I have, yeah. right? So, you know, I submerged myself into classes, voice classes, uh, wow. learning the technology uh, so that I could figure out how can I do my own podcast. I bought the gear and invested in both the gear, a space, myself, my training. Uh, then the real hard part, I invested in the research, you know, and I wrote a couple of these sociologists, historians, Ben Junkins, political sciences professors uh, from around the world, asking them if I could research, use, summarize, revamp, put a voice to their work, right? And most of them said yes. You know, most of them were like, yeah, if you want to do it, it'd be great. That helps our, our work get out there further. Uh, but the no disrespect to any professors, I love the work <laughs> that they all do. But reading a 19, let's say a, social, a sociologist's academic research paper on a family in China in 1945 that just has sparse, sparse little mentions of martial arts and how they're involved in the community culture mm -hmm. is a very tough read. Right. I mean, there's a whole language that just like a lawyer uses a certain particular language to uh, as a medium for law, academics have a whole language that they use that I was clueless. I spent more of my time in the dictionary than I did reading the research papers. <laughs> uh, and so uh, all of that was my effort to say, OK, you know what? This is something that is good because it's not easy. Now, I don't know what's going to come of it. I, I have no idea what kind of impact it's going to do or have at all. But I do know that I'm not going to just not do anything. Right. And it turned out that over the course of time that Kung Fu Podcast became a very popular podcast in the United States, United Kingdom, uh, had a pretty good following in uh, Germany. And, uh, and like I said, it's about 300, 300 episodes in. And I, and I still enjoy it. I've got uh, several themes of podcasts that I'm getting ready to do. Uh, one is going to be on religion and martial arts. Uh, another one is on uh, some of the physical culture that's resonated through martial arts over the course of years. And I'm always dabbling on the clinical components to martial arts. So yesterday we had a, a, a physiologist, I'm sorry, a physical therapist on injuries and healthcare associated with martial arts. Because Sifu Jin always taught us that, you know, good Kung Fu or three Kung Fu is what he would say. And there's Kung Fu for show, Kung Fu for fighting and Kung Fu for health. Any of them are good, 
You just need to make sure you know which one you're practicing. Uh, okay. Okay. And so one of the things that would happen, just like I said before, is there was plenty of folks who were out there doing great Kung Fu for show, but peddling it as Kung Fu for fighting. And that was something that, you know, I, I would just point at and say, you know, if you're doing this, you're not doing anything wrong. You just got it in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a, we have another little mantra or a little motto is like, you know, you hear that little story about, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side, yep. right? You always hear that. But most folks don't take a moment and, and take in the possibility that the grass is, the grass may be greener on the other side because you're not over there messing it up. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's one possibility that it's just, you know, so if we know what side of the grass that we're working on, we can have green grass everywhere. But when we go and put different things in places they don't belong, we mess up the grass. That's really cool. So what advice would you give someone who's never done martial arts in their life and they're thinking of getting involved? Maybe one or two tips that you'd tell them to kind of watch out for or maybe something to avoid. As a beginner, I think it's important that uh, you realize that you may have no idea what you might be looking for. And that's okay. When you walk into uh, or talk with someone, because not every one of the good martial arts instructors are going to have a formal brick and mortar facility for you to walk into. Right. Some some of them may be a little bit more like, well, like I was when I went to Houston, right, right? where I have a, you know, I have a proper uh, position in, in a job situation that doesn't allow me to become like a professional martial artist where I have a brick and mortar facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my, my first thing will be is have a general idea. Are you willing to make a commitment? Because any good martial arts training that you're going to find is going to require that you make a commitment. And I don't mean a financial commitment per se. Some probably will, but I mean an, an emotional commitment. Because if you're looking for something easy, then go find something else, right? Because a good martial artist training is going to challenge you either mentally, physically, emotionally, Two of the three or all three. So uh, do that first. Just make sure that you have a commitment to yourself to learn. I would dare say avoid any sort of like real pressure. A good martial arts instructor will let you make the choice about what you may or may not want to practice. But you also have to take the responsibility. A good martial arts instructor will also hold you to the responsibility that uh, like my Sifu did is like, you don't have to do this. But if you don't do this, you're not getting that. And so we had, uh, so for example, one of the things we had to be able to stand and do standing meditation for one hour. And if you didn't practice your standing meditation for one hour, you didn't get to learn that new system of Kung Fu. Okay. Top of my head, those would be the main things is just make sure that you have a a real commitment to learn uh, that you're going to, you're not, you're not looking for something easy. And that uh, you have you have choices. You know, I, I, I read an article by one of the professors uh, not long ago. He said, you know, if you have a martial arts instructor who insists that he's also your spiritual leader, you might want to step out. Right. Because mm-hmm. most good martial artists will have a spiritual component to it. So the uh, the point being is that, uh, you know, not all not all martial artists are going to be like your religious leader as well. So if you, uh, you know, if you find one who demands that you are also that, uh, that, you know, that you also participate in your martial arts training at that level, which surprisingly enough, I didn't realize how many, how many do do that, Mm -hmm. that you, you know, and uh, I wouldn't recommend that either. That's, that's too valuable. You need to find your own spirit 
in the course of the process and not be told what it was going to be. Okay, good. Good answer. Now you're primarily traditional martial artists for all these years. What are your thoughts on MMA and the UFC? And are you a fan? Uh, well, one, my thoughts and my fanmanship are two different things for me. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, interestingly enough, that was part of the process of the story of my, of my training is that years later, I left to go to Houston, was coming back. And I guess the MMA was just starting to kick off a little bit. Yep. Uh, you know, that's when the, the jiu-jitsu and things like that was being offered a little bit at Bragg. And um, they were making more of a name for themselves and they were trying to make a bigger name. Uh, so a, a couple of the Gracies would come out to brag and things like that. But uh, the competitiveness of it was you know, just awesome. You know, I, I, I come from the heyday of boxing when boxing was really good, right? I mean, yep. Ali, Foreman, you know, uh, uh, Kenny Norton. I mean, you, you know, back when, do you remember those days? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Norton and Bobbick. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they they were all kinds of good boxing. And so when the MMA first came out, I thought, okay, well, this is really a big step up as far as a combative action sports. And um, it wasn't something that we typically got involved in. And I say that because we being most of my classmates, and when I say most, I would say seven out of 10 for the most part, Mm -hmm. or eight out of 10 were military. And they were either ground forces, Delta, Ranger forces. They were people whose lives depended upon their training. Right. All right. And they had free opportunities paid by government contract to teach the soldiers. And many of them would not go to that training because for from them, because I got to learn from them, that was the advantage of having them. I was like, why would you pay Sifu at the time $75 a month, which was ridiculous. It was mm-hmm. worth so much more. But why would you pay Sifu $75 a month when you could go right over there and practice and they give you facilities and everything? And uh, they were like, because that's recreation. That if I if I do what they asked me to do, I'm going to get killed. In the real world of you know being in a foreign soil, you hit the ground and you're wrestling with someone, you ain't got but about three to you know, just a few seconds to change that situation and get back on your feet. Mm-hmm. So for many of them, they, at that particular time, they, they might participate in, in it as a sense of, of keeping up their toughness mm-hmm. and keeping up certain, certain skills and the aggressiveness, you know, because that's a part of training that you can practice in a lot of way, be aggressive. Uh, you don't have to always hit somebody. You know, there's different tools to help you make, make that true. So um, I never really got involved with it, but then one of my younger classmates did, and he did real well with it. So, yeah, and so he he got real good with it, and my interest in it started to dissipate when it became it just kind of exploded and it was so commercialized and all this other stuff, and and I just it as far as a traditional martial artist looking at the MMA, the one thing I didn't like about it was the fact that there was this portrayal that fighting or grappling was all that there was to the martial arts. And that's not how I have been taught. That's not how I teach. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, that there's certainly not a lot of that that goes on with it. And if you're training martial arts, uh, then you have to have some components of it, some bumps some bruises, some, uh, what we, my dad would call a physical lesson. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> 
But uh, other than that, I, a, after that, I just I very seldom ever watch more than one match. Occasionally, when I recognize a name like Brock Lesnar, yeah, right, you know. But you know, interesting, like with Brock Lesnar, when he came out into the MMA, it wasn't because he was a WWE guy at the time. It was because I remembered him when he was a wrestler, yep, and national champion, NCAA national champion. And I was like, wow, I mean, this is pretty heavy duty. Way to go, wrestlers. And I remember, uh, what's, what's the guy's name who does all those shows? Uh, Joe Rogan. Oh, Joe Rogan, yep. And, uh, yep. and he made a comment on one of his shows that talking to somebody about the guys who do the best in the MMA usually, not all the time, but usually have a strong wrestling background. And I, as, a, as a wrestler myself and in my, still in my heart as a wrestler, you know, the one thing that wrestling provides you is this intense pursuit of finding success, even when someone else is trying to lay their willpower and their aggression upon you. It is a, you know, it is six minutes of tough time, right. you know, in a wrestling match. And so uh, my feel about the MMA is I think it's a, it's got a, it's certainly, what is it now? Uh, a billion dollar industry He's worldwide like now. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So no, I don't, they don't get any of my commercial money. <laughs> That's good. Good. So who are some names that you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Huh? Well, my personal one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Correct. All right. Yeah. You know, I would dare say I've learned a lot from, well, David Chen would have to be up there mm-hmm. and, and probably even, uh, um, Koling Ying would be up there. Okay. Out of my Chinese martial arts group and, and training. Cause I learned so many styles from Sifu Chen and then Colin Ying had such a profound influence on Sifu Chen. I put Ian Abernathy up there, nice. you know, okay. mostly because, uh, he influenced me. He sparked me. He and I've got to meet a few times and he keeps me motivated, keeps me on my toes, mm-hmm. you know? And so, uh, I like that. And then, uh, huh. No, I, I don't give that thought a lot of question. I, I, I could say something more like Bruce Lee or, uh, you know. Um, and you don't have to have four. Uh, I mean, no, three, no, three no, no, there is. A, there, the, the, the one more, one more name is going to pop up here. Okay. And it's going to be uh, uh, Wang Zhang Jai. Okay. Okay. And Wang Zhang Jai had a huge influence on Sifu Ko. And he continues to this day to have a big influence on how I teach and how I uh, continue teaching. But, you know, Troy Price out of the Shirite Bujitsu Kai is a good friend. Uh, he certainly made it. And I'm, for him, he's made such a huge impact to people around the country mm-hmm. in uh, jiu-jitsu. Uh, he's, a, he's a good friend. He's somebody who I really admire. So I could just as easily say, say his name up there in the modern uh, Mount Rushmore right. of people who make influence in the martial arts in a way that uh, I really am glad to see. Nice. Good answers. So is there one philosophy you learned in all your years of martial arts that rises to the top? One that you keep coming back to, one that you're sure to make sure you teach your own students? Yeah, there's a few, but the one that resonates a lot is that when it doesn't seem easy, that usually means that it's something that you need to explore more. Nice. You know, the, the Marines have a saying that you run to the gunfire. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're practicing something and it doesn't seem easy, it's not the practice's fault. It's your, and it's not your fault. It is your responsibility to find out what is making this difficult. 
Is it, you know, that is it my mindset is inappropriate, you know, for this particular exercise? Am I physically not prepared for this type of exercise? Mm -hmm. Am I having some emotional moments? Sparring is a great place. Good example, right? I mean, when you're, it could be any number of things, but that one, that one thing probably leaps to the top more than anything is that when it feels like it's not easy for you, it's a good thing to explore from all different directions, mentally, physically, and emotionally. Nice. Another great answer. All right. Got a a few fun ones to wrap it up here. Do you have a favorite martial arts book? Wow. The one book that always comes back to me was the Buddhist book on mind training. Okay. That book was harder than biochemistry at graduate school. (laughs) The Buddhist, I think the Buddhists probably know more about training the mind than anything else. In fact, there's an old Chinese saying that if you want to learn about society, you study Confucius. When you want to learn about your your place in nature, you, st- you study the Tao. When you want to learn about yourself, you study the Buddhists. Okay, good one. I'll have to, I'll have to add that one to my list. I have never read that one. So, <laughs> all right. Now this one, not all my guests have an answer for, so may, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but do you have a favorite martial arts video game? Huh, that's a good one. But it, it, I mean, the, the original, by original, I mean like the original like Xbox when Mortal Kombat first came out. Okay. Like Sega, Gen- you know, Sega it, Genesis it, or something back then. Yeah, that's okay. right. The Sega Genesis Mortal Kombat right after the movie. Okay. The original movie. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Nice. But that now it's so, it's so, so advanced and all this <laughs> other stuff. Back then it was just line them up and punch them. Exactly. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right. How about a favorite martial arts TV show? Well, I don't know if it would be my favorite, but it certainly had an impact was the original Kung Fu TV right. show. That's a good one. A lot of people yeah. use that one. It's a, a hope yeah. got a lot of people interested in it. So, okay. Mm-hmm. And final question, favorite martial arts movie. Well, I can tell you the one that uh, I can see it to this very day. And uh, it was in, it was in a drive-in for those younger people in the audience. The drive-in was actually <laughs> our COVID free situation back in the day. Anybody could go to the theater to watch a movie. And I sat on the top of my dad's station wagon with a bucket of popcorn and my brother. And the movie, I, I'll never forget, it was Billy Jack. Oh, nice. Billy Jack. And he, when he said, I'm going to take the side of this boot and put it right there on the side of your face. <laughs> and he did it. Right. I mean, that that show, you know, and what I loved about that show wasn't just his physical ability. It was how he carried himself, how he conducted himself. And that how you would have never known that he was who he was or could have be. And that to me was kind of like the personification of what a good martial artist would be. Somebody who was humble, very kind. Uh, for the most part, you would never, never have a problem with. But like a rattlesnake might warn you a little bit going, hey, dude, I, I don't want to do this. So you might want to back up. Very cool. I love that. That's a classic movie. And, so <laughs> Yeah, it was. And, I, and I'm going to tell you one that really motivated me because my dad knew him was a movie was walking tall. Ah, now yes. that wasn't right. Now the original walking tall. Yep. And, and I say that because, you know, my dad, it may not be a martial arts movie, but there was lots of martial arts and lots of combat, lots of fighting, but lots of reality and whatever was reality at that time. And that sometimes it takes your ability to stand up for what is right and right. you're going to pay some price for it. And, and and considering that even where I'm talking with you at from right now is the same house that my brother, my dad, and myself, my family and all built. 
And, you know, when we were first building this place, the head of the Ku Klux Klan was just 15 minutes up the road. Wow. And so, um, you know, he would often remind us, you know, about Buford Pusser and walking tall that, you know, you need to be prepared just in case, you know, because we don't know. And he was a highway patrolman at the time. So he did know, right, what was happening at a bigger level. But he didn't always tell us, but he would tell us things like, you know, son, I need you to do this. I need you to stay away from this area. I need you to be back in by this time. And I'm not going to tell you too many times. You're either going to do it or you're going to be in trouble either by me or by the reasons I'm telling you not to do that. Right. And so, uh, yeah, but Buford Pusser walking tall. But Billy Jack, as the first martial artist in a movie that I went, wow, I dang near dropped my popcorn <laughs> off of the station wagon in that drive in theater. Loved it. Nice. Well, Tim, I just want to thank you, man. This, you're first of all, you're a great storyteller, man. I've enjoyed this so much. I, I really, really, <laughs> I could talk to you for hours. So much, so much fun. I will put links for for all of your your websites, your podcasts, and everything when the, when the show's released. Uh, and I mm-hmm. just want to thank you for your time. I've really enjoyed it, Brian. I loved it. I'd love to talk with you again sometime too. Okay. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you'll join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.